Hey, Dominic. Hi, Katie. We've got a bit of a special episode for you this week. As you will probably know by now, we like to think of ourselves as a fairly climatey podcast. We like the idea of trying to prevent a full-scale climate apocalypse, to put it mildly. So we have been very interested of late in this thing called Fit for 55. Uh, what is that, Dominic? Well, like a lot of people, both of us thought at first it was some sort of plan to get Europeans to exercise more. to propose it's fit for 55. Surnommé fit for 55, la révision du système des chocs. concept of fit for 55 for fit for 55. But eventually it emerged that it's a climate policy. A really big policy and one that's potentially going to have some pretty big consequences on all of our lives. We knew this was a big thing, but if I'm being very honest, uh, both of us were too busy having a holiday over the summer to spend much time digging into what it really means, which is why we're really happy to be bringing you a deep dive into this policy this week. Before you switch off, because you think that sounds incredibly boring, you do not need to be a policy nerd to enjoy this conversation, because the person who's going to be guiding us through this monster of a policy is someone who's incredibly good at explaining things. Where we're not decarbonising enough. Where we're all going to die in a flame. (laughs) (laughs) We are teaming up with the Open Society's European Policy Institute to bring you this special episode. Emily Stewart is one of their climate specialists. She's a full-time explainer of complicated EU climate policy things. Before we spoke to her, we had a basic grasp of this idea that Fit for 55 is Europe's flagship climate policy. And we also knew that it's pretty ambitious But in terms of how it might affect our actual lives, things like the kind of cars we drive, the kind of homes we live in, we were kind of in the dark. We were also quite conscious that in just a few weeks from now, the world's leaders are going to be gathering for these massive climate talks in Glasgow in Scotland, the COP26 talks. And we wanted to know how this policy fits into all that. How does what Europe is planning to do to make itself more carbon neutral, how does that compare to what the rest of the world is doing? Is it also enough to make up for the uncomfortable fact that Europe, historically, has been a massive contributor to the climate crisis that we now find ourselves in? By the end of our chat with Emily, we felt not exactly like experts on European climate policy, but definitely much, much better informed about where we're at. And we hope you will too. Enjoy. Before we get into the meat of the policy, I have to ask, how did this whole thing end up being called Fit for 55? Because it it sounds like some kind of fitness initiative for people in their 50s. Uh, It does. It's it's not. It's all to do with the climate. And actually, I suppose more accurately, it's fit for making sure that the rest of us reach the age of 55, because it's the EU's big answer to the climate crisis that's going on at the moment. Instead of being an exercise programme for the middle aged, what it is actually about is getting the EU to the target of 55% emission reductions in comparison to a baseline of 1990. The European Commission, having written that into law, had to start to think about how are we actually going to reach 55% emissions. And that's what the package is all about, is how do we get there in a concrete way. And in that sense, I think it is quite unique because I think we are the first major industrial player in the world to actually translate ambitions in a concrete roadmap to how we get where we need uh, to be. For someone who doesn't look at this 
day to day to day. It's quite difficult to like visualize what a 55% reduction from 1990 actually looks like. So yeah, could you help us visualize it and maybe explain whether it's a drastic target, whether it's a big target or whether this is kind of relatively modest? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people who are working on this would probably say it's relatively modest. And for that reason, I'm not sure that necessarily we're going to start seeing huge changes kind of day two after these things come in. It's not the most innovative package in that actually what it does is revisit a lot of existing climate legislation and try and superpower it. Um, but it is the first time where climate legislation is actually going to start looking at the home front. So things that affect people's day to day life, like the way we insulate our homes and how much we pay for fuel. And ultimately, if we are actually going to start to meet the challenges of the climate crisis, then it is going to start to affect the way that people's lives operate, um, you know, for example, people are probably not going to be able to use private cars with combustion engines as much as they could. And people should start to think about if they need to replace their boiler, if they might want to do that with something that's ready for one of the new technologies that's coming online. So it should be a fairly gradual thing. But of course, it all really depends on how the member states take this package and start implementing the kind of broad guidelines that are going to come out of it. And you say it's going to affect things like the cars that we drive and the boilers that we have in our homes. But is it going to be things like, OK, this product will no longer be available? How does it work in practice? I mean, that's a great question, because, again, it kind of comes back to what you first asked. How radical is this? And I mentioned that some people probably think it's not radical enough, because, frankly, if we want to get to the emissions reductions that we need to, to prevent the absolute worst effects of the climate crisis, then it may get to a stage where there are things that we can't necessarily access or use in the same way that we could. The thing that we've got to think about here is this package is kind of the balance between all of these worlds. It's where the commission has come to. So there was a lot of the member states who were looking at 45% as the target for emissions reductions. There was a lot of political parties asking for 65%. This is a classic Brussels compromise where we've basically landed at something that nobody's happy with, somewhere in the middle, which is 55%, which means that the emissions reductions should be radical, but not so much that it kind of spooks voters and businesses. Is that going to be enough to prevent the worst parts of the climate crisis? Possibly not. And that's the worry from the point of view of lots of scientists, not least the UN, who've recently released the report that said that their scientists are concerned that warming is happening a lot quicker than they expected it to. I mean, on the, on the broader question about our lifestyles, this is something that we at Open Society Foundations do have some concerns around um, because the Commission is introducing for the first time targets for reducing emissions, as I mentioned, in homes and transport. And they've not necessarily designed it in the most elegant way. They haven't designed it in a way that means that ordinary people won't be paying for that transition. So, for example, a landlord who owns a large property may look at transferring the costs of insulating their home onto the tenants. Um, and people who are using their cars for transport to get to their jobs each day may suddenly find themselves paying much higher costs for their petrol. And we're kind of missing that in-between piece where we look at, OK, you know, we have to make these emissions reductions, but how do we do it in a way that's fair and equitable and doesn't hit the people who are most vulnerable in our society first? For me, a key piece of that is how the politicians transmit this and how it's done at the member state level. It could be a historic day, but we will only know in three, four or five years. 
it will only really mean something for our citizens and for our handling of the climate crisis if you and the council turn it into legislation. Because really we need to start being quite honest with people about how bad the crisis is, how much is needed to get us to where we need to be to prevent the worst aspects of the crisis and how we can pull together as a society because I think people could end up being quite cross if the ordinary person has to pay out of pocket for all of these things and businesses are still seen to be getting a free ride which at the moment the way that the package is constructed may well be the case. Presumably there'll be quite big differences across the EU as to how these policies are brought into action, depending on what the different member states decide to do. Have you got any idea yet about whether there will be big differences to how this will be enacted across the continent? Yeah, it looks like there probably will be fairly big differences. What you're talking about there, Dominic, is something that we like to call in um, in the Brussels jargon as subsidiarity. So the European Union decides that we're all going to go in a direction, but they let the member states decide how they get there. So, for example, if you're a country that's got a lot more high carbon industry and a lot more of your population are relying on jobs in those industries, you'll be supported in financial ways to make the transition quicker than you otherwise would be. So other countries may not receive quite as much of the piece of the pie to make that transition if they're already quite far down the road. Now, that, of course, has resulted in political infighting because countries who are further down the road in their decarbonisation feel that they're maybe being penalised by not receiving as much of the the money that's available to modernise industry. And there's also a bit of a missing piece of the puzzle in this subsidiarity picture, because at the moment, there's no real way to sanction member states if they don't get there fast enough. So the European Union is really relying on the member states to look at one another and try and act as one to get to the, the same place without there being a backstop of what you do if somebody doesn't play by the rules. And leading that attempt to make Europe act together as one is Ursula von der Leyen. She has referred to these policies as the roadmap towards reaching Europe's climate goals. And it sounds like she's quite pleased with this roadmap. But how has all of this gone down with climate scientists and activists? So scientists and activists are characteristically not very pleased with the suggestion. And that is because fundamentally we do have the big issue that 55% reductions actually isn't going to get us near where we need to be for keeping the world underneath 1.5 degrees warming, which is what we all signed up to under the Paris COP agreement. We'd need to be more like 65% reductions if we wanted to get there. So scientists and climate activists are understandably concerned that we're 10% underneath what we need to be to be in line with our international commitments, let alone if you think about the historic contribution that the European Union has played in terms of pollution. You know, some people would argue that those cuts need to be faster and deeper because of that. However, I would cautiously say that von der Leyen does have good cause to be pleased with what she's put forward because globally, this is the most ambitious package of climate measures that's on the table. Nobody else has even attempted anything close to the European Green Deal. And to achieve what she did, she had to get every single commissioner in the European Commission around a table to agree to it. So that is everybody from the Commissioner for Climate to the Commissioner for Energy and Jobs and Growth. And on top of that, she had to get 27 member states to agree to these measures as well and to sign up to the original piece of law, which signed 55% reductions into action. So, you know, if I was Ursula von der Leyen, I think I'd probably be pretty pleased with this roadmap as well. Thank you very much. This was an enormous effort, but the result speaks for itself. The problem is, is you've got the kind of 
political picture, but then you've got the reality of what's happening with global warming and the fact that we need to speed things up. So yes, good work. We should all be pleased and quite proud of the road that Europe is on, but it's not quite enough yet. It's also not quite finished yet, is it? This is just uh, the proposal that will now need to be discussed by the European Parliament and there'll be ongoing negotiations. To what extent could this still all change? Is there any chance that they could come up with much more ambitious goals? Um, Yes. It's not generally the way things work, unfortunately. It does happen that sometimes we have legislation that's proposed and you have an enormous wave of optimism through the European Parliament that carries a piece of legislation way above and beyond what people had expected. And to some extent, this revised aim up from 45% to 55% was one of those. So we know that the ambition is there in the European Parliament. But generally speaking, things tend to get watered down rather than watered up. So we'll have to see how that works in practice. On the other hand, this is all happening to the backdrop of the climate crisis being on Europe's front doorstep. In Austria, flooding and heavy rains are causing serious damage. Wildfires are destroying huge swaths of territory around Europe. Europe potentially recording its hottest ever day. Europe has also been badly affected by the floods. Weather forecasters say it is the heaviest downpour in 1,000 years. It comes as severe heat waves intensify. We've just seen a summer of unprecedented flooding, unprecedented heat waves. We're breaking all of the records. And where member states have usually been a little bit of the sticking point, they're now under a lot more pressure from their own citizens who are seeing the day-to-day realities of the climate crisis to do something ambitious. And who knows, maybe in the next couple of years with that pressure, we might come out and land somewhere that really gets us where we need to be going. It's really interesting watching this from France because, as you say, there are all of these mostly young voters who really, really want governments to act like way more radically on this stuff uh, than they are already. Having said that, you know, I live in a country that had a major social revolt, essentially over a policy that was aimed at trying to make the country more environmentally friendly, right? Um, People might not remember this, but the whole thing that sparked the Gilets Jaunes protests a few years back was this plan to make car fuel more expensive. And people got absolutely furious about it. They said it was this classic case of technocrats who live in cities making policies without understanding the impact of how it's going to impact working people and working people especially who live outside big cities. There is this awareness that big corporations aren't perhaps being made to bear as much of the cost as ordinary people. But is there anything in the package aimed at actually helping to alleviate that impact on normal people? So that's a really good point, Katie. And I'm going to quote the chair of the Environment Committee in the European Parliament. Um, He's called Pascal Canfan and he's a member of En Marche, so he knows the backdrop that you're referring to in France very well. And when he saw the proposals for um, making an emissions trading scheme for housing and for transport, he called it political suicide. So there are plenty of politicians who are very aware of how green measures have backfired in France and want to make sure that these measures have that social dimension. I think that Europe's answer to that was the Social Climate Fund, which is one of the only really new tranches that have been introduced by the Fit for 55 package. The rest, as I mentioned, are mostly revisions to existing things. And the Social Climate Fund aims to make sure that cash is flowing to regions and populations who are going to be disadvantaged by some of these policies. 
But at the moment, it doesn't look like it's enough. And there are other parts of the Fit for 55 package which have financial elements where they're not necessarily directing that cash flow to the communities who are going to be affected first and foremost by moving away from high carbon industry or high carbon lifestyles. So there's a lot of fiddling with the books, if you ask me, that still needs to happen on the financial side to make sure that those vulnerable people are getting the first piece of the pie when it comes to these funds and that the funds being created by taxing industry for fossil fuel use are being channeled into innovation and into innovation that's going to create new jobs and new opportunities for people who've otherwise been working in these industries. We're speaking to you from a Europe that's in the midst of quite a serious energy crisis right now. The price of natural gas already increased around sixfold compared to last year and consumers and businesses are really feeling the pinch right now. Do you think these policies are going to further exacerbate price rises? I mean, some of these price rises at the moment are arguably already because of Europe's green policies. Yeah, well, I think I take a bit of issue with the premise of the question that um, some of the fuel rises are because of Europe's green policies. I think that a lot of the price rises are due to Europe's inaction on green policies. We've known for years that we need to be making these steps and we're doing things very last minute in a bit of a haphazard way, which means that we're seeing, you know, price rises where there's grid unpredictability. You know, had politicians heeded the warnings about the needed transition 10 years ago, then we wouldn't have this issue and probably would have a much cheaper, more connected grid. I mean, there's also, of course, a big geopolitical aspect in here because where does Europe get most of its gas from? Wholesale gas prices in the UK uh, hit a record high, rising nearly 40% in a single day. They went on to fall after that, after President Putin indicated that Russia might boost supplies to Europe. Um, and at the moment, we're building a brand new pipeline that goes to Russia. And we're also putting into action something called the Green Taxonomy, which is basically a list of activities for the financial industries to know whether or not they're going to be classified as green. And there's a big argument going on about putting gas in there as one of those green activities. So we're kind of locking ourselves into future problems, particularly if you look at the volatility of gas prices and where we're mostly sourcing it from. So crucially, we need to be making sure that we're connected in a way that makes the absolute most of the energy that we have. And that means reducing the amount of energy we're using and making sure that efficiency is the number one priority. And does this package do that? Not yet. In fact, that's a huge missing piece in the package. There's an awful lot in the European Green Deal about green growth. And this is kind of the narrative that underpins it. But we do need to start to move towards a paradigm where we're looking at reuse of products and reduction of our overall footprint. We chose carbon pricing as a clear guiding and market-based instrument with a social compensation. Emission of CO2 must have a price. A price on CO2 that incentivizes consumer, producers and innovators to choose the clean technologies, to go towards the clean and sustainable products. We're looking, of course, at innovative ways, for example, in the Fit for 55 package for powering our vehicles with batteries. But that potentially drives more mining for the types of rare earth minerals that we put in the batteries for our cars, which leads to more global warming when you deforest the areas that you have to, to get those rare earth minerals from. It turns into a bit of a catch-22 situation, that if you just constantly go for this growth over all else, that 
you're driving the same issues as you had before. And the same goes in this package, there's also an element looking at maritime fuel and aviation fuel. And one of the magic keys that they're looking to unlock that issue with is the use of more biofuels. Now we've already seen that biofuels drive deforestation in places like Indonesia for palm oil. And when you have deforestation, you have rising emissions, not just from the deforestation itself, but the carbon emissions that they're no longer absorbing. So we have to make sure that this package puts us on a path, not only for emissions reductions in the EU, but also outside of the EU's borders. So, you know, it's all well and good if we try to imagine that we'd have this beautiful green utopia within Europe's borders where everything is run from batteries. But if that's off the back of extractivism and mining elsewhere and outside of the borders, then it's just not going to work because we'll all feel the effects of our shared climate ultimately. And how does this fit into what the rest of the world is doing? So we've got these massive climate talks coming up next month in Glasgow. Is there a chance that what Europe's doing, which according to you is like really quite a world beating and fairly ambitious, if not ambitious enough program, like is there a chance that that could encourage other parts of the world to be more ambitious themselves? Yeah, I mean, there's there's always this dichotomy as somebody who is pro-European of having a kind of double personality about what we do. Now, on the one hand, a lot of what you've heard from me about the Fit for 55 package is quite negative, you know, saying that it doesn't go far enough, that it potentially drives more mining and deforestation. Um, and then on the other hand, I'm saying, yeah, it's world beating. It's the best out there. And I think it's okay to have those two contradictory views. And that's what the European Union needs to go into the COP with in their mindset. But they also need to be very mindful of the fact that other countries outside of the European Union can see how we're operating. So we do have to walk the walk as well as talking the talk. It's not going to be enough to go to COP and tell other countries that they need to decarbonize if people can see that we're not making those efforts within our own borders. I do, however, think that as a market, as one of the biggest markets in the world, what we do has an effect outside of our borders. So if we go to the COP and we're saying, look, we have this world beating package, we are going to stand here, we're going to say that we're going to reduce our emissions by 55% in 2030, you know, aiming for that 1.5 degrees, then other countries are going to need to sit up and take notice, not only for their own ambitions, but also if they want to be able to compete with some of our future technologies, if they want to be able to import into the European Union's market, they need to make sure that it's going to be compliant with the types of things that we're doing. So just on a very practical measure, there's that. But one would also hope that moving towards COP in Glasgow uh, later next month, that we could have a little bit of the spirit that we had in the famous Paris COP, where the European Union was one of the main drivers of this low ambition coalition to get us to this 1.5 target and really bringing people with us in that spirit. Because I think that's what we're good at. When, when we're good, we're very, very good. And we're good at bringing people along with that kind of spirit and that ambition. And I hope that we can bring this to COP and not kind of regress into a, a feeling of almost like climate nationalism, where it's, well, we're going to innovate, we're going to decarbonize and you can follow or you can get left behind. So, Emily, you've been like pretty fair, I think, on Fit for 55 today. It seems like there's quite a lot to be critical about, but also quite a lot to be proud of as a European. Where do you settle? Are you looking at this bill as a glass half full or a glass half empty? Mm, I think definitely a glass half full that can only get fuller. Because we've got the building blocks now in place. We've got 
the ambition, we know what needs to be done, and the scientists are consistently reminding us that we need to be doing more. So it's very difficult to block those experts out and not listen to it. I think we need to be cautious with our optimism about what COP can deliver because it's been plagued by technical difficulties, not least the pandemic. But in terms of what the EU can deliver in the coming years, I think we've got a lot of reasons to be optimistic. And I think that's the only way that we can possibly move forward with looking at addressing the climate crisis because there's absolutely no point in lying down and saying, well, you know, the politicians won't get to it, things can't change, the emissions are only rising. We've got the package, we've got the framework, we've got the way forward. We now just need to make sure that the EU can deliver on getting us out of this climate crisis and look forward to what I think can be a much brighter, socially positive way of living our lives if we can deliver on everything that Fit for 55 has the potential to do. This episode was produced by Wojciech Oleksiak with editorial support from Katie Lee, Katz Laszlo and me, Dominic Kramer. It was a collaboration with the Open Society European Policy Institute. Find out more at the link in the show notes. This podcast is a member of the Are We Europe audio family. Thanks very much to their team in Brussels for welcoming Emily in their lovely podcasting studio. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks as ever to our Patreon supporters. They're the ones hopefully keeping this podcast fit till we're 55. You can join them at <laughs> patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. We actually aren't going to be here next week, listeners, because we're taking a little break. So we'll see you the week after. Bye. Bye.